Welcome to Life on Less Meds, a podcast that reveals the truth about drug side effects and the best strategies to manage them. And now your host, Dr. Yosef Wittering. Hi, I'm Dr. Yosef Wittering. It is my pleasure to be joined by Jaden Brandt here. He is a PharmD. He's a clinical psychiatrist and also a clinical teacher um, at the uh, Rady Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Manitoba. Uh, he's also on the scientific advisory board for uh, the, the the Alliance for Benzodiazepine Best Practices, um, providing scientific oversight there for for what you know the advocacy work they're doing towards and you know informed consent for benzodiazepine use and deprescribing. And um, it's just a delight to have him here. I'm going to be talking to him about uh, standard of care in benzodiazepine deprescribing because he's actively doing research in that area. And so I hope you enjoy the conversation. Um, but, uh, you know, Jaden, welcome again. And so wh- why don't you just start off by telling us, like, how did you get interested in benzodiazepine, deprescribing and protracted withdrawal injury and things like that? Yeah, I'm happy to. So so just to, to also very briefly set the record straight for the audience, I'm, I'm not yet a PharmD. I'm doing my doctorate of pharmacy through the University of Alberta, but I, I am a licensed pharmacist in in Manitoba, Canada for the last 10 years. Uh, and I, I do have a Master of Science in, in Benzodiazepine Pharmacoepidemiology. Essentially, my story as a, as a healthcare provider uh, began in 2013 when I graduated out of the University of Manitoba. I went up north in the province of Manitoba to my hometown uh, and started trying to really apply the clinical instruction um, that I learned in school over, over four years. And I became quite discouraged noticing a lot of that the the trends particularly in psychotropic medication use was very much in in deviating from best practices of what we learned about in school and particularly with benzodiazepines in uh, the patient population that I was seeing. Uh, This was a patient population that was frequently um, of lower socioeconomic status, had uh, various social issues, Uh, there were a lot of disparities in uh, Northern Health region, um, and I, I saw that these people weren't necessarily getting the best quality of care, particularly when it comes to uh, their mental health. Uh, I saw a lot of um, overprescribing and excessive use of benzodiazepines, dose increases that were uh, very difficult for me as a as a, a young and initiating kind of pharmacist to justify. Uh, it worked effectively with some prescribers, not so effectively with others, and I think I had a, a fairly positive impact um, on, on the patient population that I served. Just but to sort really, of spe- spell it out, were you seeing like, you know, people rather than getting benzos for like a month or two, like usually yeah. they're meant to be used, it, it, they just weren't being reviewed, they just kept on... We're, we're talking year, many years of benzo use, duplicate benzodiazepines with Zopiclone, uh, we're talking opioids in conjunction with uh, benzodiazepines and, and dose increases as well. So um, it really ran the gamut. I, I saw quite a lot of, of um, uh, problematic use, even benzodiazepines being initiated um, and, and then renewed for anxiety disorders and things when um, you know we're, we're taught, as with, with many psychiatrists or mental health professionals that are prescribers, that we would typically see an antidepressant being used as first line. Now those drugs obviously come with their own issues as well, but there were a lot of um, just deviations and, and uh, difficult to justify prescriptions. Um, so I, I worked effectively and, and would mitigate as much harm as I could, working with both patients and prescribers. 
but it really spoke to the issue of, of how deep is this problem? How widespread is it? I'm practicing in Thompson, Manitoba, but is this a, is this a province-wide issue? Um, so it got me delving a little bit deeper into the literature, but it also prompted me to want to explore this uh, from a population health science perspective. So I, I came back and did my master's degree in between 2016 and 2019 uh, with a diploma in population health concurrently um, so that I had a, a little bit more of an understanding about uh, health policy, knowledge translation, um, other uh, issues surrounding health promotion, uh, chronic disease state management, and it really, basically I, my findings were, were um, not necessarily as shocking as I thought, but still a concern. There were, were a lot of factors that were prevalent that uh, did show room for improvement, and we often see these in pharmacoepidemiologic studies on benzodiazepines where there is room for improvement. So um, one of the most interesting things that I, I, I noticed was over, over a 15-year period, there was a 300% increase in zopiclone or Z drug use uh, compared to other benzodiazepines. Um, in the early 2000s in Manitoba, we typically saw uh, a more, much more diverse array of benzodiazepines being used. Um, alprazolam, clonazepam, diazepam, bromazepam, pretty much everything. And then over time... Let me ask you this. Sure. Did, I mean, do you, do you think that was because those Z drugs, they're newer drugs and they were marketed mm. as being safer? And so there was a transfer over onto those? I mean, how, how do you understand a 300% yeah. increase um, in those? I, th I, think that's a, I think that's an excellent question. So I think for one... Um, the, the practice change in insomnia management, really in having uh, newer prescribers and older prescribers adapting to this, um, really this belief that, that Z drugs are, are obviously a safer alternative to benzodiazepines. Um, so that was part of it. Uh, I also speculate, and this is perhaps a, an ecological fallacy and it would need to be studied a little bit more, but I think that um, just generally speaking in the Western world with the increased use of uh, mobile phones, technologies, electronic devices, having an impact on our sleep function. And then that may be also driving uh, increased insomnia prescriptions overall, whether we're talking Z drugs or other, other agents. Now predominantly I looked at the benzodiazepines and benzodiazepine receptor agonists, so I couldn't confirm whether we would have seen uh, increased rates of, say, prescriptions for off-label trazodone or um, doxepin or mirtazapine, some of these other agents. But I, I think that that, without kind of speaking outside of my, my, my scope of expertise, I think that uh, a lot of variations in our modern lifestyles have disrupted sleep patterns. Um, and that could have led to, to some of these changes over a 15-year over a period. Um, so that, that was one of the biggest findings, was, was that pretty substantial <laughs> increase. The other was that benzodiazepine use beyond the Z drugs, like the, the, the classical or traditional benzodiazepines, um, their use over time really became consolidated into uh, about four agents. We saw increases in, in the use of, of clonazepam, um, and, then, and then there was still considerable use of diazepam, alprazolam, and lorazepam, of course. So those were kind of the top four, uh, but other agents that you don't often really think of or see very much of, chlordiazepoxide, um, chlorazepate, or uh, um, temazepam, th those, their use did decrease. Um, 
and that, that would make sense, especially with temazepam being more often used for, for, for sleep anyway, being replaced with sopiclone. Um, now, this study was on drug utilization. It didn't necessarily look at uh, harms associated with it, these things, but looking at the broader literature and how well established a lot of the harms already are, when we're talking uh, motor vehicle accidents, psychomotor impairment leading to falls or fractures, things of that nature, I think that um, you don't always necessarily have to follow things through to the full conclusion. And then gradually, I think science can kind of lead the way to making fairly general inferences based on what we already know from, from these drugs. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it sounds like you caught the bug then. And I mean, you finished that, that, that epidemiology uh, diploma or, or study, and then you kept on going, you know. Yeah. Uh, how did how did you end up picking up uh, deprescribing guidelines? How, where did you, because yeah. this has been a massive year long, you know, multi year long pro project for you to look at the deprescribing guidelines. Tell me about how you got started on that. Sure. So, so in order to kind of effectively speak to that, I think I should probably talk about my history with starting with the Alliance for Benzodiazepine Best Practices because that's essentially where this comes together. Um, after I had completed uh, my master's and I was in practice for, for a few years, uh, really working with uh, the, the patient population that I was seeing in, in Winnipeg uh, and successfully tapering patients off of benzodiazepines that, that you know, were willing to and uh, who I was convinced that there was some ongoing harm or loss of their quality of life, uh, I encountered this, this not-for-profit group online um, run by, by Bernie Silvernail. So I reached out to him because I thought this is right up my alley. This is an area that I've done some research in already. Uh, we made contact and this was a number of years ago now, probably about three or four at least. Um, and it was the medical director at the time, his, it was really his baby, his, his idea, Dr. Stephen Wright. Uh, he had compiled uh, a core evidence package and had very thoroughly uh, examined and collated a number of clinical practice guidelines that covered both prescribing and deprescribing. Now, my, my thought was, uh, this is excellent. Um, why don't we, but in order for the world to kind of effectively know a lot of what we've discovered, uh, we need to put this through um, more of a rigorous methodology. We need to, in order to do an effective knowledge synthesis on this, uh, we need to do something like a scoping review. Uh, so that's currently what this is. Um, can't really speak necessarily to the results at this stage because they are um, preliminary and uh, we're in the latter phases of the project. Um, it is also challenging to do a large project like this and spearheaded as a PI uh, when you're um, a part-time student and, and a practicing pharmacist and all the other things that life of course throws at you but, but uh, it's, it's been a very worthwhile journey and it's certainly not something that um, can be done solo. Uh, but generally speaking, in engaging with a lot of these documents and collecting them, running them through uh, an inclusion-exclusion criteria and determining basically the international collection of guidelines for both um, prescribing benzodiazepines and anxiety and insomnia um, and even for depression that's presenting with, with anxiety. And then also examining deprescribing guidelines uh, more focused. Uh, for, for any particular condition where long-term use is, is no longer indicated and we need to try to taper patients off. Um, let, let, me, let me ask you specifically about deprescribing because as I mentioned yeah. previously, 
I often get called upon to do uh, forensic work for benzodiazepine injuries, and mm-hmm. usually it's for protracted withdrawal injury. And so what we do is um, – oh, excuse me. Sorry about that. Um, I'm going to start over. So um, I do a lot of um, – so – as I mentioned before, I do a lot of uh, forensic work for um, people who've been harmed by benzodiazepines, especially protracted uh, withdrawal. And one of the, at least anecdotally, one of the most high-risk periods for developing this is during a rapid benzodiazepine detox. And this is something that commonly happens in detox clinics all around the U.S. I mean, I'm talking people get pulled off in you know, less than a month, sometimes even sooner. You know, they might be on high doses and they just kind of rapidly pull them off over the course of several weeks and they throw them on gabapentin. Some people come out of this um, with severe injury that lasts for years. Um, And so from my perspective, I always want to know is, you know, who said that that was a reasonable thing to do? Was this the American Society for Addiction Medicine? Maybe because a lot of addiction doctors are the ones overseeing those practices. And I, I never really knew the answer as to why it was okay to do that to people rather than a gradual patient-led taper. So I, I was wondering if you could kind of speak to that um, and just sort of let, just tell us, you know, wh- what do you see in those guidelines out there? Who, who's sure. the most authoritative group out there, you know? Um, and, you know, what do they say? Like, yeah, just... Yeah, yeah. sure. So, so there are, you know, a number of guidelines that cover deprescribing. Um, there's some from the National Institute for... for Healthcare Excellence, I think, out of the UK. I don't know if I got that acronym right. It has changed at, at some point in the past 10 years or so. Um, they have they have a, a, a quite authoritative guideline uh, that covers psychotropics generally. So there are there is guidance on benzodiazepines in there. Uh, there's also the, the guideline from the deprescribing.org or deprescribing network uh, that is a, a Canadian uh, collaborative. Um, those guidelines are, are quite well cited and, and fairly well established as being uh, of high rigor and standard. They use the, the grade criteria, which is, is become a gold standard for evaluating evidence and making recommendations. Um, a lot of these guidelines, however, what I will say is that they, they often don't explicitly engage uh, their audience with how to effectively engage with shared decision-making for patients. They often... Um, prescribe a kind of generic um, deprescribing approach that is, I would say, probably fairly effective for some, but not necessarily all patients. Uh, So I think that, as with with anything, and I think we learn this in clinical medicine, that, that guidelines are not always going to be definitive in every situation, or, or they could be authoritative, but ultimately they are their guidelines, their guidance, uh, we need to really um, adapt them to the purposes of the individual patient that we're dealing with and treating. I think when we're talking about uh, deprescribing, one of the most critical things to always bear in mind is whenever possible, really put the patient at the forefront and empower them uh, to engage in the deprescribing. Uh, so an al- analogy I've previously used in, in an interview 
um, medicating normal interview, but I, I also think that it's quite useful to illustrate it for patients is that, you know, as, um, as, an, as an expert on benzodiazepines or for anybody who is an expert on antidepressants or other medic psycho psychoactive medications where, that require tapering, uh, unless there's maybe a high-risk scenario where we need to taper them off sooner or an inpatient setting or something of that nature, uh, I like to imagine that the patient is in the driver's seat, but it's almost like one of those training vehicles where you have your foot on an emergency brake pedal. And the patient can kind of drive it at the rate that they're comfortable, uh, but if they're going too fast or deviating off the road, you as the driving instructor, in this case the deprescribing um, facilitator, uh, can always put on the brakes or make um, an adjustment if needed. So. Uh, one thing I will say more kind of generally, and this is working from memory of the deprescribing guidelines for, for um, this is the deprescribing uh, benzodiazepine receptor agonists guidelines uh, out of Canada, the deprescribing.org guidelines, uh, published in Canadian Family Physician Journal. Um, they, they generally offer a, a, a fairly, I think, robust tapering plan. They don't necessarily advise switching to long-term, to a long-term benzodiazepine, which I, I, is actually in opposition to some of my approaches and strategies. Uh, I find that I, I will often, especially when you get near the end of a taper, uh, switching a patient to um, like a, a gold reference standard, diazepam in particular, is, is particularly useful. Um, and so there, there is, I, I would say, fairly minimal um, acknowledgement or uh, advocating of, of like the Ashton method, um, which, you know, to, to, to some extent is evidence-based in and of itself and is, is highly re respected. Um, but there's many ways of tapering. So I, I also think that um, the guidelines out of Canada are a really great place to start. And I'm not just saying that because I'm Canadian. I think that they uh, have set um, an early gold standard, but there there does need to be more work in establishing uh, deprescribing guidelines um, in the U.S. Say for uh, especially like from a large national organization. Um, so, so what do they the say court. just in general? Like the the Canadian the deprescribing Canada mm -hmm. guidance. If you were to kind of just explain it in a minute explain or two, what's the general it? philosophy in there? So the the general philosophy, I believe, is to typically taper kind of at a rate of 10 to 25% reductions, maybe every two to four weeks or something of that nature. Um, I'm working off of memory here. And then once they get usually down to the 25% of their original dose, they will potentially go lower and go slower. But the oftentimes the intent is a tapering um, regimen that will discontinue somebody from a benzodiazepine uh, definitely in less than a year, sometimes within three to six months, uh, or potentially sooner if they're on a low dose enough already. I mean, if, if they're doing 25% every two weeks, that's, yeah. I mean, that's like two months, you know, they could be off. It's significant, and, and, and it's, it's not something that I necessarily believe with the patients that I've worked with is, is relatively feasible. Um, I also think that we need to account for the possibility of those plateaus where a patient reaches a certain dose um, 
and based on what is happening in their life at any given moment, uh, various stressors and other, other factors, um, they might want to hold that taper for a considerable duration. And, and I think that as long as there is kind of ongoing risk assessments and uh, monitoring in place, I, I would say that that is appropriate and that's something that can be encouraged uh, and will also strengthen the patient-provider relationship. Um, let me let me ask you this: What do you make of the 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 contrast between the this the deprescribing.org guideline and I guess what is what is actually commonly used out, out there in in the deprescribing circles where they'll say maybe you know five percent a month you know sometimes you know sometimes even slower you know with tapers mm-hmm. going because that sounds like what you're doing like how, how do you um, yeah. or, or something more slower and more flexible. Like, like where does that difference, how come there's that divergence that you have all these people sure. with the lived experience doing it one way, but then, you know, deprescribing.org is essentially saying we could get you off in like two to three months, you know, no worries. Yeah, I think that's an excellent question. So if I were to, you know, speculate on kind of squaring the circle in terms of how that came about, um, I would say that, Oftentimes with, with guidelines, they do a fairly rigorous search and, and um, a kind of systematic review process of the evidence. And I would say that common practices aren't necessarily captured in the evidence, uh, especially um, there have been a lot of kind of variable approaches to tapering and there has never really been a gold standard. So when they work with what is available in the literature. What they come up with could very well be justifiable, but it isn't necessarily the the optimum approach. I think that given enough time and studies that are maybe conducted and captured using real-world evidence and real patients, um, guidelines 10 years from now could very well uh, look a lot like what you and I might be be doing. Um, And I guess here's another question, and I don't know if you You've you've gotten to this kind of level of resolution with with the study. It's hmm. a lot of um, you know, like it may you know their guide you know their advice to have people stop over you know two months that might be fine if someone's been in a clinical trial like a controlled clinical trial for three sure. months or something like that. And I know at least in the antidepressant world that's where a lot of the discontinuation guidelines have come from. They've they've been add-on studies on the backside of clinical trials that have just been, you know, short duration, you know, in the months. And so that that almost makes it look like it's a lot easier to come off the medications. But the reality is that the patients in those studies, they've only been on the drugs for like three months, as opposed to maybe what you and me see in, in the in in the real world where it's like, you know, we got people who have been on them for a decade. Mm-hmm. And so you know, I I wonder if that's a possibility as well. Why the guidelines become so skewed because they're based on an unrepresentative patient population from a short-term clinical trial, rather yeah. than like real patients. I mean, is that what you're seeing when you're looking at the references of these guidelines? Which, yeah, I would I would say yeah. that that's a, that's a very perceptive um, observation to to make. I, I would say that it, it's frequently like that in clinical trials for really any kind of disease state when there's going to be inclusion exclusion criteria or we're looking for uh, a positive effect or we're trying to limit confounding factors. Um, a lot of these 
multi-morbid complex patients are going to be unfortunately excluded. Um, but they're very much included in, in real life. And as you and I know, uh, the, the guidelines don't necessarily um, are applicable or relevant in all cases to help some of these individuals. Uh, so I do think that with enough time, and especially in light of, of more patient engagement in research, uh, if you look at some of the research that has come out from our colleagues in the Alliance, looking at benzodiazepine-induced neurological dysfunction and things of that nature, uh, I think there will be uh, a stronger case perhaps over time um, to really engage in a slower, more patient-oriented deprescribing um, approach broadly to kind of limit these benzodiazepine injuries and, and neurological dis dysfunctions. Um, does that kind of answer your question? It, it does. I just don't know um, when that's going to happen. I do know that the FDA, yeah. in conjunction with, I think it's the American Academy of Addiction Medicine, is currently mm -hmm. doing one of these things. And, it, I mean, if that comes out and it's good, it will be one of the most authoritative documents, at least in the U.S., to have, have something like that. And so... I'm kind of waiting in bated breath to see whether it looks good or not. I mean, I am a little bit weary. I know that the um, contributors are, you know, heavily stacked in academic settings where, I mean, they're more like career academics rather than people who actually treat folks with benzodiazepine withdrawal. And so I suspect they're just going to be influenced by the same... I guess I don't know. You know the the same kind of chorus that you that you see in the medical literature, and which people have kind of heard again and again in practice. Like, oh, you yeah. know, it's not that bad. You know, it's over in a couple months, and anything other than that is just scaring people. Um, so, yeah, I'm I'm kind of you know trying to not get my hopes up too much. Um, yeah. No, that that's very true, and and I think that there is a real risk of that happening. Um, especially when it is predominantly academic clinicians that are uh, engaged in this. And it's not to, to say that these folks aren't highly intelligent and capable uh, as researchers, but if they're, they're not necessarily engaging actively and, and highly actively in, in treating um, hundreds of patients uh, that are, are requiring kind of gradual dose reductions and drug discontinuation, um, that personal expertise that you develop in working with these these individuals um, isn't necessarily reflected in, yeah. in what we see in the guidelines. Uh, yeah, there's something there's something about the fact that you know all over the country there's people getting hurt in these in these uh, detox centers by addiction medicine docs and and you know the guideline is being driven by the the addiction medicine group where I'm just like well if you're letting that happen, I mean are you going to come out with a guideline saying you know, this is this is wrong. You know, what yeah. what's happening? All I mean, I hope they do. It's just, I yeah. I, I wonder if they have that, if they they're, they're going to be able to see, see past it because it's. I'm frequently told it's missed. I mean, it's. I mean, it is. You know, they, eventually they just go, okay, you have another psychiatric condition. See you later. You know, and it's like, sure. Thank you for your thirty thousand dollars. Yeah. Yeah, and it's unfortunate when we talk about drug-induced harm, especially for psychotropics, where, um, you know, there, there could very well be kind of an established stigma that, that develops or encapsulates a patient's life. Uh, 
when you know they're written off as having somatic syndromes or, or other issues um, associated with the harm of, of uh, psychotropic medications. So I think um, really ensuring that also uh, individuals like you and I that are that are actively in, in practice when we encounter some of these more unusual or bizarre situations that where there, there could very well be, say, a benzodiazepine-induced um, protracted withdrawal where tinnitus or, or some other um, kind of physiologic adverse effect phenomena is more prevalent, that we actually file a report if we think that this is happening uh, to our, our, in my case, Health Canada and yours, maybe the FDA, so that these things actually do come to light through real-world evidence more, more actively. Um, I think a lot of it exists on patient forums uh, or uh, these kind of recovery support networks for, for patients, and I think that's positive. But that isn't necessarily strong enough to uh, create the change within the systems of, of healthcare provision. In, in your, um, in your um, scoping review, do you cover the Ashton method? Um, we, I don't recall if we do or don't. There's there's over a hundred guidelines in there. I, I would think that if we did, we would remember. But the the Ashton method is well established and, and well regarded. But based on the on the methodology that we employ, uh, it 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 wouldn't probably suffice as a guideline per se. It might suffice as a guidance document. But mm -hmm. if there, if it's if it's by one, you know, prominent and well reputable um, British psychiatrist, uh, it it doesn't make for a consensus based guideline. So it could be due to methodological limitations like that that it, it, it might be included. Um, I'll have to check, but yeah. I, I will say that uh, a lot of the slow kind of tapering that we practice isn't reflected often in the deprescribing guidelines at large. Um, one of the major limitations that, that isn't in there as of right now is some of these more, um, I guess, kind of unusual or ad hoc methods of tapering that are not uh, based on, on solid dosage form reduction. So we're talking about water dilutions or tablet shaving, things like that. Uh, and patients do do this, um, and, and they could very well have some success. It's not something that I've done a lot of research on myself or looked into. I think the practice is perhaps more prominent in the U.S., and some of our colleagues at the Alliance can pro probably speak more readily about this than I am. But the very fact that it's happening and that patients are engaging in um, some of these more uh, atypical tapering strategies um, means that I, I would think that they should be at least commented on in guidelines so that we know how to address them with patients and ensure that, that it's, it's, a, it's at least an option that people are doing. Have you seen any guidelines at all while you've been doing this that, that reflect the kind of the patient experience that, that we see in, in our work or is it all mostly just like deprescribing.org, you know? I, I would say it's I would say it's mostly like that, uh, and deprescribing.org is is one of the good ones. Like, don't get me wrong, um, there's a lot more guidance than your average provider would get on deprescribing otherwise without them. Um, a lot of the other documents that I've looked at, 
Because we, we examine both factors relating to the initiating and prescribing for um, one of the included conditions, as, so both initiation, maintenance, and then deprescribing. So we look at all three of those. Um, and the documents that cover them are quite different. So occasionally you will see deprescribing or at least a suggestion of tapering in an anxiety disorder guideline or something like that. But it doesn't get into the, into the, the finer granular detail of how to do that. It might just say as a one-off, say in, hypothetically in say the British Association of Psychopharmacology guideline, it might just say use for upwards or a maximum of four weeks and then consider tapering your patient off but it won't necessarily say how. So, so that kind of, those things left unsaid are more filled in by the deprescribing, the newer deprescribing guidelines. Um, so I think there has been a huge paradigm shift with moving towards deprescribing within the last probably 10 years by and large. Would, would you say that the NICE guidelines are probably the best? Because they're the only ones I've seen where they even acknowledge liquid titration for lower dose reductions. I, I don't know if there's any other guideline that that goes into that level of depth. Yeah, I, I haven't seen anything like that. There, there was one guideline and, and I, you know, if this work does at some point get published, it'll, it'll show up in there, but it, it was talking about making reductions on diazepam, at reducing it by 500 micrograms or something of that nature. Now, you can't really do that in the current, so it's kind of left to the provider to think like, well, how am I going to do that unless I go a compounded route or I advise my patient to, you know, I guess quarter tablets of two milligrams or something. But um, nonetheless, it, it, some of these things are left very much implied but not explicated on in, in enough detail to, to guide clinicians or patients on the strategy. Um, but your, your observation of the NICE guideline is, is I think, quite, quite prudent. Um, the NICE guidelines are probably some of the best that I've seen in terms of really uh, empowering um, more shared decision-making around patient uh, discontinuation. Um, the, there's a lot of variance within the guidelines currently, I think. So, the purpose of a review like this is to kind of lay the groundwork so that uh, future researchers or guideline developers on deprescribing can kind of see what already exists, why there might be discrepancies between guidelines, and then really look at consolidating the evidence maybe more thoroughly or properly, and then filling in the gaps where guidelines are otherwise silent. Mm. So that, that's what I hope that our, our research group can accomplish, but a lot of the conversation around this is is um, preliminary because the, these results are still being processed and, and are in work and not yet submitted for publication either. What were you taught about deprescribing when you went through your training? <laughs> That's a good question. Probably very little. I think deprescribing really came to the forefront. Um, I mean, did you have like one lecture or is it just something you maybe heard from someone while we, you're out we, doing clinical practice? Yeah, I think it was probably something more along those lines. If anything, we encountered the word tapering far more commonly than deprescribing when I was um, going through, through my undergraduate pharmacy training. Uh, so I would say that the terminology has shifted with this paradigm shift towards 
um, really focusing on finding and striking the right balance between patients' medication regimens. Uh, and I think at this point in time, there is far more of a curricular focus on deprescribing. Um, I can say quite clearly that uh, the, the dean of um, my pharmacy school, Dr. Lolitha Raman-Wilms, um, is associated with the deprescribing uh, network or the Canadian deprescribing network. And she and other colleagues have been very active at reforming curriculum for pharmacy students and uh, other professions that inv are involved in prescribing, such as medicine and, and psychiatry. Uh, who is that really that's doing that? Sorry? Who, who's yeah, so this is the, her name is, is Dr. Lalitha Raman-Wilms. You can also look up Dr. Barbara Farrell. Um, basically, the, it's people from the Canadian Deprescribing Network. But okay. they've, they, they've also collaborated with individuals internationally. Like there are um, probably over the last, I'm going to say the last 10 years, and, and that's kind of a landmark for me because that's when I, I graduated from pharmacy school and did not encounter much on deprescribing. But since then, it's really become a, a center kind of focal point, I would say, within um, pharmacy education, at least as I, as I seem to interpret it. Not actually being in the classroom, but engaging with pharmacy students, they are far more aware than, than they maybe used to be. So, mm -hmm. um, but in terms, of the, in terms of the training, I think that the approach is to really assess people's medication regimens um, in a very systematic way, whether it's through some kind of framework like the um, indication, effectiveness, safety, and adherence framework, or the ICEA framework, or some other, uh, but we're, we're simultaneously looking for omissions of medications that patients might require to improve their health, and also looking at ones that are, are long past overdue for, for possible deprescribing opportunities. So the, the principles around it, I think, are kind of the same, but whereas maybe 20 years ago, people weren't really thinking about deprescribing at all. They were just thinking about prescribing, right? And now the focus has really shifted, and, and I think that's a very positive thing. How did, I mean, I don't know if you know much about the history, but how did these things get going? You know, was there a, you know, sometimes, like, I know there's, like, a pivotal event you know, I think thalidomide yeah. for like drug regulation, was there something that happened that spouted the growth of these deprescribing movements? I don't know if, if, if you yeah. know. No, that's, that's an excellent question. I would be curious to know the answer myself. I, I'm, I'm not aware per se. I think it's, and again, it's more speculative, but I think it's the gradual acknowledgement that within the West, we often have an aging population with increasing medication burdens um, and the, the medication lists seem to be growing among our, our patients uh, over time and each and every year and I think it kind of gets to that critical mass and it's not necessarily an isolated major milestone event that triggered the deprescribing um, focus and, and I could be wrong maybe there was one but my my perspective is it's been more been a gradual realization that this is a, this is a problem, and then it took a a recognition of that and a team of collaborative researchers to really um, take action and really start establishing best practices around this. Great. Well, Jaden, I'm I'm about out of out of questions for now. Is there anything else that you wanted to share before we wrap? No, I don't think so. I, but I, I do want to say I really appreciate. 
the opportunity to, to chat with you. Uh, I think we're of, of similar mind when it comes to medication safety. I've appreciated uh, your content and what you put out there to support people both suffering from psychotropic drug reactions as well as um, informing the public generally about, about these, these various issues. So thank you. Yeah, thanks very much. I look forward to chatting Likewise. with you again soon. Right. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you want to see the full video interview, we also post these to YouTube. Just go to Wittering Psychiatry on YouTube to find those. You'll also find several YouTube exclusive videos from Drs. Yosef and Marissa posted several times a week. Finally, if you need help with your drug taper, getting a second opinion, or managing your post-acute withdrawal, come visit us at WittduringPsychiatry.com. Our sole focus is on helping patients regain control of their lives and achieve optimal mental health on as little medications as possible.